I want to uh, pick up on the um, sermon series here uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2. We find ourselves um, at least halfway through the second chapter of 1 Peter. And um, a little bit of review here from the last time I preached. There's a uh, fairly long section, as I see it here, in relation to submission. And he names different areas and aspects and ways that we can submit, and I've divided it into uh, several different sections. Um, I showed this slide the last time, and uh, this is how I have the, uh, uh, this passage outlined, at least for my sake. I think we can see uh, clear teaching in verses 12 to 17 about submission to government, and then verses 18 to 20, which we will cover today in the last sermon, I talked about submission to government. And in verses 18 to 20, we have submission in the workplace or um, submission at work and things that uh, relates to that. And then there is a section here in the middle of, these, of this section that talks about submitting like Christ. And I feel like this section specifically and maybe especially gives the why of submission. And yeah, why we lift up submission in our lives. And then uh, I'd like to cover uh, numbers two and three here today in our sermon, uh, with the way I've laid out this series of sermons. And then uh, the next time I preach, I want to talk about submission in the family. And he's specifically using the illustration of marriage and how submission in a marriage is essential and important, necessary. And then uh, the fifth section in this section of Scripture is talking about submission in the brotherhood. And that's chapter 3, verses 8 and following. <clears throat> I think there are two principles that shape everybody's life. Uh, how we live. And that is, I think, there's the, the two things that I uh, think um, shape our lives is the principle of ownership and the principle of servanthood. I will, I will invariably go about living my life as if I am in charge of my life or as if God is in charge of my life. Those are the two things. The principle of ownership or the principle of servanthood. Um, obviously, the scripture is very clear on how we're to live. We are not to live as unto ourselves. We are not to live for ourselves. We are to live in a way that gives ourselves away. That's what God's will that is for us. That's one of the things that the scripture highlights as important and necessary for a Christian. That of giving myself away, giving my life away. And I think this section of Scripture is especially clear on that. We're not to live in such a way that is about us or that it centers around us. <clears throat> and especially, I want to repeat, I feel that verses 21 to 25 are sort of the, the crux or the hinge passage or the portion of this passage that uh, gives and explains the why of submission. Why submission is such an important aspect of, of the Christian life. 
So we have uh, here in the text, uh, verses 18 to 25 is the text that we'd like to especially focus on today in our sermon. And you can see uh, Peter starts to dial in on certain characteristics, traits that are Christian character traits as compared to people who aren't Christians and how we should be visible. These traits and these characteristics need to be present in our lives, our daily lives, not just in church, not just when we're about uh, our lives in the community, but at work. And I think that's often where um, we tend to resort to selfishness, maybe especially in the home and in the church. And I think it's no accident that he brings those two aspects out. We tend to be especially challenged in the area of submission at work and in the home. The next time I preach, we'll be talking about submission in the home or in the family, marriage. Those are two areas where we tend to especially struggle, where submission is especially tested. Now, in verse 18, the first word there is the word servants. Servants, be obedient. Be subject is the word he says. Be subject to your masters with all fear. The, the word servants. I think it could very easily be translated slaves. And I think some, some translations will use that word. It's talking about the culture of that time. And uh, for hundreds of years, slavery was a... It, it was... It was normal for slavery to exist. And in that time was certainly one of those times. The slaves or the servants were the workforce. They were the people that uh, did the, the work. They were the working class people of that culture. That was the workforce of the Roman Empire. And I think it's... Um, clear to see in some of the epistles, Ephesians would be sort of the parallel passage. Colossians has something to say to workers. And then you will see that they also double back and talk about employers. So the, the irony here in the Christian church was that there were believers who were slaves. There were slaves who came to faith in Christ and they were part of the local church. And in the same church, the same group of believers, the same local church, were employers or slave owners. And understandably, to teach and preach what the disciples preach, that salvation is by faith in Christ, brought an equality to, to these people. And so it was a bit of a paradox for that time and for, yeah, their, their time, and understandably so. Many of the audience to whom, people, uh, to whom Peter is writing here were, were slaves. And like I said, the same audience were also slave owners. Um, let me just repeat, I think I mentioned this the last time when I preached, but it's been a little while, and that is that in the Roman Empire, it is estimated that at various times, at least half the population were slaves. 
And in the Roman Empire, for the most part, and there was a variety, but they were the working class. So they could be anything from educators to doctors to, um, yeah, what we would consider high-class people. Or they could vary all the way to doing menial tasks like um, janitors and cleanup and doing menial tasks like we would tend to think of in relation to slavery. But they were the working class of people. And like I said, a large portion of the Roman population at this time is thought to have been slaves. And so Peter addresses the relationship between servants and masters. And again, keep in mind, these, were, these two classes of people likely were present as he's teaching. Now, just to clarify, I think it was probably not that much different in that time than it would be or is in more modern history. For example, the slavery of the United States in the 17 and 1800s. Uh, there, were fa- there were good masters. There were masters who treated their slaves fairly, who loved their servants. They were like family to them, and they treated them well. They treated them um, fairly. And then there were also masters who were cruel and harsh, and you can see that pointed out right here in the text. There was both kinds of masters in that time. And as a slave, um, I think slaves were considered at that time, and as is true in where slavery is present, they are, their personhood is challenged, where they are property. They're not actually um, able to speak for themselves. They're a piece of property. And I just have to state something plainly to you. I think the Bible and the principles of creation would show very clearly that slavery is wrong. There is no place for slavery. I think the Bible describes it that way. But what Peter is doing here is speaking to something that existed in that culture, slavery. It was was part of that, that culture. And I think it is very interesting what he says to them. The first thing he says is that they are to be submissive To me, I find myself saying, whoa, what did Peter just say here? Is Peter saying that slavery is okay? Not necessarily. It is also interesting to to note that he does not tell them to rebel. He does not tell them to uh, start a coup or to go on strike. He does not tell them to join an activist group to lobby against the union, so to speak. But he says, servants, be submissive. Use your slavery in a way that even your situation will cause somebody to sit up and listen to the gospel message. There's numerous people throughout time that have pointed out the fact that none of the apostles, including Peter here in 1 Peter 2, outrightly condemn slavery. I don't think there's any place in, in uh, the Bible where slavery is specifically and explicitly crusaded against. Nowhere are slaves told to rebel. 
and that's bothersome to some people. And I maybe sort of understand parts of that. Well, again, Peter does not tell slaves to rebel. He does not instruct them to get out of the situation that they're in, to seek to get out of it, to escape, or to some, some way, um, yeah, get out of the situation they're in. But he tells them here in this text, as close as I can tell, to lift up Jesus in the situation in which they find themselves. And I think it's instructive for us. Again, I think in virtually every culture around the world at this time, the Roman Empire was in charge, and I think slavery was peace and part of the social fabric of that time. And on top of that, Christians were in the minority. They were in the minority already. They didn't have political power whatsoever at that time. And for them to speak out against slavery in that time probably would have been like speaking to the wind or something like that. And so Peter encourages and directs slaves to submit, to allow Jesus to be lifted up in the situation that they're in. It's a very practical command. And I think it's a command that all of us can find applicable for any situation that we find ourselves, the undesirable situations that we find ourselves. Interestingly, just a, a little bit of a side note in relation to slavery. I think it is very fascinating to see how that the Christian influence has impacted and run against slavery. For example, numerous resources that I checked, including Wikipedia and Britannica Encyclopedia and that sort of thing, they will actually, in their, um, they will credit Christians for speaking out against slavery and being influential in changing, eradicating slavery. And I think that's true most times, if not always, nearly always, in, in, uh, when, when slavery is present, it is, the, it is the voice of Christians that brings change in that situation, where slavery is abolished. And uh, usually the anti-slavery movements are led by Christians. Uh, again, I'm not, that's not just me saying that. I think that um, some of these secular um, resources would point that out. And that's because that Christians are taught in Scripture to see people with compassion and to see people as being in the image of God, not a piece of property. But they're human beings just like I am or we are. All slaves are created in God's image, was, was the text or the, the teaching of all people are in the image of God, which is the teaching of the Bible. In our culture, we don't have slavery, but we also, here, right here in this congregation, we have employers and employees. And I think the principles are the same. Um, I'm not saying that it's the same. I'm saying the principles on how to relate in that environment carry the same. So for the sake of today, I think mostly we're going to be, to make it practical for our day, we're going to be thinking of it in that way. Employers and employees. And um, yeah, there are several things that I want to point out from this text as principles. Principles for the workplace.
In my work, I have the uh, opportunity to listen to a variety of podcasts, and uh, um, I uh, fairly, uh, very occasionally, I would say, listen to um, secular podcasts like Dave Ramsey, for example. Um, I disagree with many of the things that he says. I think there are some things that are noteworthy and are good to, for for me to hear. Uh, one of the things that he talks about in relation to being an employee is to work hard at what you do, to be the best possible employee. And I think that's, that's true to Scripture. He says, Dave Ramsey correctly says, that we should be such, an, such a good employee that the boss cannot imagine doing without us. And I think that's correct. I think that's what we should strive for. I think in our jobs, I think we should work so hard and be so diligent and to do everything as good as we possibly can so that the boss cannot imagine doing without us. I, I think that's, that's good practical advice for us. Christians should be the finest employees. They should not be the ones that are whining. They should be the worst. They should be the best possible workers in whatever situation, even the worst situations, Christians should be the ones that are rising to the top and doing the finest job. That's the, that's the principle. So he, to break that down in verses 18 to 20, he simply says that in the workplace, we're to be respectful, be subject to your masters, he says, with all Fear is the word. And that's sort of an old word for respect. It carries the idea of, of um, the chain of command, or it gives recognition to a chain of command, or a flowchart, as we call it, familiar with, where we do what we're in our lane. We, we work in our lane. We do what is, what is ours to do. And we do that well, understanding and realizing that there's a boss over us and we're responsible to, to lift up the boss, to, to make the boss look successful, to be the best possible employee that we can be. Don't be a bitter employee. Don't be an employee who is whining and complaining and begging for uh, pay raises and that sort of thing. Do it in the best possible way. Do it with as much zeal and energy and passion as you possibly can. Now, we see there's a potential complication. We've already noticed as we uh, get into this passage here that there's not just one kind of boss. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. And that's, that's great. I just expounded on that. But he says, not only to the gentle, not only to bosses that are good and gentle, but also to the forward. And the forward, the word forward is an old word for harsh or nasty. If your boss is nasty, do the same thing. If your boss is gentle, work in that same way. That's, what, that's, that's the instruction here. It means, the word forward means a person who is crooked or deceitful. Now, if a person is that way, if a boss is that way, there's going to be problems. Uh, you, it's invariable. There's going to be a problem. And um, 
the employees are going to suffer. There's going to be challenging situations in a situation like that, where there's not fairness, where there's not uh, um, honesty, where there's not transparency and those sorts of things. It brings problems to the workplace. But if a person is that way, he says they have to do with God in, in other passages. The Ephesians 6 passage, and I think Colossians also brings that out, that masters are responsible. In a, they're responsible to God. The employee is not necessarily responsible for the boss. Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. He continues that same theme in verse 19, where he talks about enduring grief. This is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, that means hard times or unfairness or things not being the way they ought to be. The structure is not sound. And he says... It's thankworthy if you endure that. If you're able to, to lift up Jesus in that situation, it is thankworthy. It's commendable, I think, what he's saying. Suffering wrongly, enduring grief. And verse 20, he talks about being patient. Doing good, but still suffering. Have any of you been ever, ever been in a situation like that where you had a boss, where you did the right thing, you were doing the right thing, but you still suffered for it? Now, I'm sure that in an average career, we have situations, and if you're like me, you have the opportunity to work for in different situations and in different work environments and different employers, and they're not all the same. And there's things that we, giftings that we have that we can find, we find more fulfillment or more joy, more ownership in what we're involved in. And that's a subject all its own. But I think here specifically he's talking about the condition, the relational condition between employees and employers. In verse 19, I already pointed this out where he says, this is thankworthy, this is commendable. You have good bosses and bad bosses. You have places, you have situations where things are fair and situations where it's not fair. And he says that it is because of conscience that we endure grief, suffering wrongfully. I don't know what all could be said about that, but he, it clearly indicates that there is a foundation. There's something deeper than the, than the situation deeper, more involving than the condition in which we find ourselves in, where he says, for conscience toward God, we endure grief. There's a deeper, more foundational principle than, the, than, than our environment that motivates us. And he says, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. In other words, God is pleased with that. That brings glory to God. When you take your work environment, and you do well in spite of the situation, in spite of the conditions, that's noble, that's important, that's a whole different level of motivation that we're to strive for. When you think about it, this is commendable before God. That needs to be the motivation for us as we work, as we go about our schedules. 
to please God. And when that is the, the motivation of our lives, um, regardless of what happens at work, we can do well in that situation. Examples? Well, I think they're kind of all over the Bible. In fact, there's numerous, there's just a lot of different stories in the Bible. Some of the most popular ones would be Joseph. Joseph was accused in spite of being the best possible employee that could be at that time. Daniel was the best possible employee in a very difficult situation. He was accused by his peers of wrongdoing and suffered because of it. And there's more. I think in order for us to transform any job into a real joy, and I'm doubling up here in Ephesians, and if you care to, you can turn your Bibles there. In Ephesians chapter 6, there's a passage here that I want to draw from. And um, I think in order for us to turn our jobs into joy, and that is, I've already referred to it somewhat, to take God with you to work. Think, think of your job as being, bringing glory and honor to God, where it, that is deeper and more involving, more foundational than who your boss is. Serve wholeheartedly, the NIV says, as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. And he goes on to say, not as men pleasers, but pleasing God, not with your eye on the clock, where we, as soon as the boss comes around, we look busy, or as soon as the boss comes around, we are working hard, but the rest of the time, when the boss is not around, then we goof off. That's, that's the opposite of what he's, the Bible is instructing us to do in this situation. It changes it completely. If we look at our crummy job and we say, I'm doing this for God, not to please the boss. And that's what Peter is appealing to. And that's what Ephesians and Colossians also are appealing to. That changes it. When we get home at the end of the day, we say, I worked for God today. I, I was working for the Lord. That changes it. The story is told about three workers. And you may have heard this story before, but it illustrates what I'm talking about. Each one of these workers was doing the exact same thing. One person, the interviewer, went up to the first worker and said, what are you doing? And the worker said, I'm breaking rocks. Big scowl on his face. He goes up to the second one, he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm earning a living. And he kept right on chopping away. And he asked the third guy, he said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a cathedral. And I think that illustrates the three different attitudes. Doing exactly the same thing. Doing exactly the same job. But realizing that there's a bigger principle. A bigger picture than just what's happening at the moment. I think that's the consideration that we need to do. Bring God to work with you. The third thing that I see here is in um, 1 Peter 2, verse 21, where we see that phrase, a personal calling. Verse 21, for, I'm going to start in verse 20. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And he continues that thought, and he says, this is your calling. 
This is what you're called to do. I, I sort of struggle with that, actually. I, I think our American mindset say, tells us that we need to find a job that we love, and we have the opportunity to do that in our society. We have, a, we have the opportunity to, to pick and choose. We're, yeah, employment, for the most part, is, is voluntary, and we, we can choose our jobs that we find enjoyment in. But here, he says, if you're in a situation that is not fair, that's acceptable with God. And he says, further, this is what you're called. This is your calling. I think we should take our work as our personal calling. I think we should enjoy our work. I think we should learn to put ourselves into it, to do it passionately. Even when the employer is harsh, is what he's saying. And we're called to that. To this you are called. Verse 21, for even here unto you're called, in the King James Version. I'm called to this. And the question again is, who do you follow? Are you following the boss, or are you following Jesus Christ? And he continues right on that thought, and we're breaking into the next section here now. He says, even hereunto were you called, because Christ suffered. That was the condition that Christ worked. That was the environment, that was the situation that Christ was in while he was here on earth. He had, he had a bad work situation. He had a, a lot of criticism and unfair conditions and nasty co-workers or people to work with that were not uh, about the, the, the big picture. And he says, this is what you do. You follow Jesus Christ's example. And I think it's especially noteworthy to notice what he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, that we are to follow Christ as our example, he says, that ye should follow his steps. And it reminds me of the visual of a father walking through the snow, perhaps, or on the beach, and the son or a child following and trying to place their steps in dad's footprints. That's the visual that I'd like to leave with us here that I think First Peter gives. We should follow in his steps. And the steps of Jesus Christ led to Calvary. And that's consistent with the teaching of the New Testament that if we're to have a life, we're to give it. If we want to be exalted, do what Christ did. Give your life, even to the point of death. Give your life. That's, that's the instruction of the gospel. In John, John chapter 13, we have the wonderful story of Jesus illustrating this in, in real life, where he washes the disciples' feet. The illustration of feet washing. I think is one of the moving passages in Scripture that talk about Jesus and his willingness to submit to his environment, to serve the people that were, uh, he was placed around, the imperfect people that he was around. <clears throat> the fourth thing that I want to leave here is that I think it's important for us, again, uh, piggybacking off of Ephesians, and that is that we not only show up to work, but we use work as a way of 
growing up. We use the situations that we're in to develop character in us. Don't only show up, but grow up, is the um, phrase that I'd like to leave with us. Jesus did that. He lived among men. He was frustrated by the environment that he was in, but he was willing to wait on God's timing. Philippians chapter 2 brings that out. And because of that, God have highly exalted him. I think it says in verse um, in Philippians chapter 2 there, where it talks about the exaltation of Christ as a result of his life here on earth and his attitude. <clears throat> and I think now what Peter does is move on to the next section here where he talks about the example of Jesus. And he lifts that up as the why of submission. Why we need to submit to government. Why we need to submit in the workplace. Why, we, why submission is so important in a home and in a marriage. Why submission is important in the, the brotherhood. And that is because Christ illustrated that for us. I see five things here in these five verses. Verses 21 to 25 a principle in each verse that talks about that. And I'd like to point those out to you. Jesus is our example, and it's the why of submission. Like Christ, he says, we're to live with endurance. In other words, Jesus is the one that we trace our behavior to. He is, whether we're in good times or in bad times, Jesus is the one. He's the model for, for this uh, submission. He's the reason that we endure harsh circumstances. He's the reason that we endure harsh situations. He's the reason that we endure harsh people, because Jesus did it. And the text, like I says, points out that we're following his steps. And that literally means foot, footprints. We're walking in his footprints. Like a young child following behind his daddy's footprints. Those footprints of Jesus led to persecution and death, led to crucifixion. And that's the call, I think, on our lives as well. Secondly, I think like Christ, according to verse 22, we're to forego vengeance. It's the easiest thing in the world when we're in a situation, especially at work or otherwise, but in the, this context of work, to sort of look for revenge, look for ways to... Uh, get back on the boss or to, to prove our point or to make a point. And here in this text, the reason, one of the reasons, one of the whys of submission is that Christ did not resort to guile. Guile is sort of a sneaky word or the sneaky part of deceit where you are doing things behind the boss's back or you're Doing things because of, um, yeah, the sneaky part of deceit, I think, is the word guile, what it talks about. I think many translations will translate that word deceit, but it has more of an um, um, active or a subtle nature to it. Deceitfulness. <clears throat> Forego vengeance. Jesus' words and actions were pure. They were truthful. There was no retaliation. There was no sneakiness in his, in his words and actions. 
It goes on in verse 23, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. His words and actions backed up his teaching. When Peter was in the garden and was ready to um, kill or injure the, the, uh, the, the soldier or the person that was there, uh, Jesus instructed him to put up the sword, to put the sword away. He encouraged or told Peter not to retaliate. And when he was on the cross, one of the first phrases that Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that was the attitude of Jesus. It's the attitude that we need to have. The problem is that in our human nature, the quandary that, we've, that we uh, resort to is that it feels kind of good sometimes to be grumpy. It feels kind of good to whine. It feels kind of satisfying to fight back in the situation that we're in. But the human nature needs to be restrained, just like Jesus restrained the human nature while he was here. Forego vengeance. And that's a lesson that Peter specifically had to learn. He was the one who was drawing the sword there in the garden. He was the one. I can't help but wonder if, if Peter was even maybe thinking about this as he writes this. Jesus specific words to him. And then there was also the time where Peter came to Jesus and he said, how oft should I forgive my brother? How, oft, how often do I need to um, yeah, forgive my brother when there's a problem? And I think really what he was asking is, how soon or how long until I can fight? How long until I can take vengeance? And Jesus replies there with some incredible teaching on ways that Peter and all of us need to let it go. Forgiveness is something that's easy to talk about until it's necessary in my life. Try living it out. That's the difficulty. How, how yeah, forgo vengeance is the teaching. And then in verse 23, we see that like Christ, we should live in confidence. The rest of verse 23 says that Jesus committed himself to him who judgeth righteously. He committed himself to the one who judges righteously. Look at that. You know what commit means? When I commit something to, um, to writing or when I commit something to the postal service, when I commit a passage, a, a parcel to, for shipping, for UPS or something like that, when I, even when I make a commitment to verbally or to a group of people, it has the idea of, of um, turning it over to someone else. And that's exactly what Jesus did here. Jesus rested in confidence. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. How precious is that? In the Greek, the word is in the imperfect tense. Committeth would be, uh, an, the, yeah, the word committed here is in the imperfect tense, which means that Jesus did it over and over and over again. It was not just a one-time thing. And if you're anything like me, you know what I'm talking about. That's a challenge, to do it over and over again, to reach that point of commitment. Finally, Jesus, at the end of his life, 
He says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's the idea of commitment. He bowed his head and died. The fourth thing that I see here is in verse 24, where it says that we are to live with extravagance, is the word that I chose. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body. That's the ultimate sacrifice. You can't go beyond that. You can't go any further than that. To give one's life. To love to that end. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love toward us. The NIV says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of God. That ought to be the heart of all of us as God's people. The sake of reaching out for the sake of loving extravagantly. I think it's completely true that you can be a good doctor without loving your patients. You can be a good lawyer and not love your clients. You can be a good scientist and not even love science. But I think it's just as true that you can't be a good Christian without loving. It's part of it. We're called to love. And you know as well as I do, people can be unwise. People can make decisions that are ill-advised or nasty or even just straight-up hurtful things can, can happen, right? And that's precisely why these people, that's in, in precisely why forgiveness is important, because we need it, because people around us need it. I need it. That's, that's why forgiveness is instructed. The fifth thing that I see here is that, like Christ, we're to display patience. Look at what he says, for as ye were as sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. The shepherd and overseer would be a word that I would choose there if I were translating the Bible. The shepherd and overseer. He is the one who displayed patience when we needed to come to Christ. When we needed fixing, Jesus displayed patience with us. He lived that way while he was here on earth. How many times throughout Jesus' life, throughout the Gospels, does it mention that Jesus was attentive to his hour? He was on board with the plan that, Jesus, that God had for him. <clears throat> and in Luke 15, we have the story of the prodigal, the son who wandered off, and his father was looking for him. And after his son, after sowing wild oats and living with the pigs, finally came home, but the Father was waiting for him. And I think that's just exactly how it is for us today. God is patiently waiting for us to come to him in full commitment and surrender. That's what he wants for all of us. He's not forcing himself on us. He's not coming to us in a way that um, uh, gives us no choice. But he comes to us because he wants us to do that, just like the Father in Luke 15. Several things as I close here. I've tried to illustrate that Jesus is our example. He's not just an example, but he is the example. He is the example that we should follow. He is the ultimate example of not returning evil for good. He is the ultimate example of working well and being attentive to what God wanted him to do in the situation that he was in, the imperfect situation that he was in. And I think it's true, sometimes I'm criticized, sometimes I'm rejected because I deserve it. 
because I do bad things. But that's never the case with Jesus. He was not rejected because he did bad things. In fact, the Bible says that he did no sin. Neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin. And yet, he served well in the situation that he was in. Jesus is our perfect example. My prayer is that all of us would be able to grab a hold of that concept and to live like Jesus in the situations that we find ourselves in life. And uh, I think it is, again, the reason or the why of submission in this passage. If you're able, I invite you to kneel for prayer as we close. Lord, our Father, we come to you. We are so thankful for Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf and the model of submission that he is to us. I pray that you would help us to live our lives in that understanding and that awareness that we would follow you in life and in our attitude. I pray that you would just give us the grace and the help to do that. Again, I pray that you would uh, help us to Be a blessing as we go through this day. Give us the wisdom and strength that we need. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.